Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you may put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Paul loved to give lengthy introductions. He typically began his letters with a traditional greeting from himself and his fellow ministers. As readers, we might be tempted to skip past these parts um, in order to get to the meat of Paul's letter. But may I remind you in Scripture, there is no such thing as small talk. If these words found in Paul's letter to Titus have truly been orchestrated and provided by the Holy Spirit of God, and they were, uh, see verse 3, then they absolutely matter to us. Paul isn't just shooting the breeze with an old friend here. In everything he wrote, especially in his divinely inspired letters, Paul was constantly doing something with each word that he said. Even the words we might gloss over have tremendous meaning. In fact, Proverbs 30, verse 5, one of my favorite Bible verses ever, says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. So, as a result, there is so much to learn about Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, and our fellow Christians, Paul and Titus, poured into this introduction. So I would encourage you to read the introduction. Don't skip it. And after you read it, pause and think, now hold it right there, because there is something for you to get, even in the greetings of Paul. Don't glance over anything God will want you to see, including this first line, Paul, a servant of God. Paul's name comes first. That way Titus would immediately know who sent the letter. And he would know uh, just how important the content was going to be. Now this is backwards compared to the way we sign letters or emails today, putting our name or signature at the end rather than the beginning. However, Paul's method makes much more practical sense, don't you think, because you see who it's from right away. Well, Paul first describes himself as a servant. And this word is translated from doulos in the Greek. And if you have an interest in studying biblical Greek words, doulos is a good place to start. It occurs ten times throughout Paul's letters alone. Now, I have discussed this word in depth during other teaching series, but I'll make a few comments here as well. Our English Bibles translate doulos as servant, but the true meaning is much stronger than that. 
adulos was the lowest type of slave. Uh, and it would be a slave who was bound by chains. Now, slavery in those days was not racially motivated, uh, and a person could become a slave for many different reasons. It was common for a person with a ton of debt in the midst of a financial hardship to become a person's slave. Now, when a borrower, for instance, was unable to repay a large sum of money, working as the lender's slave was often easier than making hefty payments. In these situations, slavery was voluntary. People chose it. They chose to enter that arrangement. And this was a practice that dated back to the Old Testament. In Exodus 21, 5 and 6, it says, If the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will no, not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an owl, and he shall be his slave forever. So when Paul brings this word for slave into his letters, we get to see his heart and hear where he's coming from. This was a man who recognized God's goodness. Paul had received too many things from God to count. He was in debt to God, an amount that could never be repaid. And in response, Paul lived a life in full service to Jesus. The goodness, generosity, and mercy of God, all of which are gifts to us that we don't deserve, should compel us to live as, yes, his slaves. We could never even begin to repay God for all that he gives us. Life, family, food, forgiveness, eternity with him, and not even to mention all the extra stuff. So as a Christian, let that be your motivation for serving God and obeying him. You, like a slave, were bought with a price, as 1 Corinthians 6.20 says. Your obedience to God shouldn't be an attempt to butter him up in order to get more stuff. Your devotion to God should come from sincere gratitude for his previous kindness to you. While this first verse is Paul's introduction of himself, his words are heavily focused on Jesus Christ. And this focus bleeds into Paul's next title for himself, where he calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul was a servant, but he was also an apostle. Jesus himself appointed, trained, and sent Paul to grow the church. Listen to what um, Paul says in Galatians 1, uh, verse 1, and then I'll jump down to 11 and 12. Paul, an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So I want you to see how there is so much to pause and think about in just one sentence fragment from the Holy Spirit through Paul. Next, Paul explains the purpose of this letter, 
and he introduces a short phrase, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Now, to understand this phrase, you must know that there are two types of faith in the Bible. First, there is a faith that each Christian possesses. We call this trust. Each Christian trusts Jesus, and we call this also a subjective faith. It's a faith that someone puts into someone else. You could have your faith in an idol, or you can have your faith uh, entrusted and put into Christ. And that's the Christian faith that each believer possesses. The other faith is what we call the Christian faith, or the body of beliefs to which Christians uh, subscribe. We call this objective faith. In a way, Paul's letter to Titus addressed both types of faith. Uh, the teachings found in this letter uh, continue to strengthen and um, strengthen the individual faith of its readers. And the teaching in this letter is in alignment with the Christian faith as a whole. Paul and Titus, who each ministered to the Corinthian church, uh, they had faced off with some false apostles whose teaching did not line up with the Christian faith. It did not edify God's church. Their message was not in alignment. And so Paul marked them as deceitful workers of Satan. 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 13-15, which this chapter is... Um, Really fascinating to read, but let's see what Paul says in verses 13 and 15. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So Paul is a servant of Christ, and his opponents, he says, are servants of Satan. Paul pitted himself against those who taught according to a different faith, and he reminds Titus that his ministry is legitimate. Paul is a genuine evangelist, and Titus had worked closely with him in the not-so-distant past. Now, in regards to the phrase, God's elect, <laughs> there has been almost 2,000 years of discussion. Questions come up within this conversation that could never be answered in a short commentary on Titus. When we are considering topics like this one, it's important to admit and understand that we can only wrap our heads around so much. Being mindful of that, I will say one thing about this phrase, God's elect, and then we'll look at the immediate context of the phrase specific to the letter of Titus. The word elect probably reminds you of politics. Think elections, president-elect, etc. The voters come together and choose who will serve the next term, either by a popular vote or the Electoral College in America, and so that's how it goes. In the Bible, however, elect doesn't refer to democracy at all. It instead is referring to God's choices. Now, we live in a world where God makes 
many decisions that impact our lives. And some people, quite frankly, don't like that. And especially in America, we like the idea of being totally in charge and making every choice for ourselves. But I think we should take it as good news that so many things in life are in God's hands uh, rather than someone else's. When Paul says God's elect, though, what does he mean? Well, he's talking about the church. All Christians are God's elect, God's chosen people. That's an undisputable fact. Um, there are many of us uh, who disagree, and where we disagree on this subject is how a person becomes chosen. Uh, and whatever conclusion you draw from Scripture, you cannot deny that Christians are called God's elect several times. And here's just one instance in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Well, let's come back to Titus and determine Paul's meaning of the phrase God's elect in this context. Some point out that Titus is one of the pastoral epistles, meaning that it is primarily written from Paul to a pastor. Therefore, some have concluded that Paul speaks of pastors when he says God's elect. But this interpretation is too narrow. It's true that God calls and elects certain men to the pastoral office. And this letter addresses the behavior of pastors in the church, but it also addresses the behavior of all people in the church, not pastors alone. Others have noticed that in the Old Testament, the Israelites are described as God's elect or chosen people. So could it be that Paul is somehow tying in the Jewish roots of the Christian faith by bringing up Jewish people and referencing them as God's elect? I don't think so. It's unlikely that Judaism would have been in view for the Cretans. There is one thing worth noting that this interpretation brings about, however. In the Old Testament, as I mentioned, God chose to partner with the Israelite people. And now, based on this verse in Titus, the true Christians in Crete, who were as Gentile as one could get, are considered God's elect. So, that, I think, is the, the deal here. No matter how you think a person becomes God's elect, uh, we have to recognize that the church is called God's elect. And it's no longer just restricted to Israel, but that God is working with people of all types and all kinds and all over the world. And it's not just the Jews. And this even extends to the people on Crete who were at one point so far away from God. And now the Christians on the island are God's elect. So Paul wrote this letter, as I mentioned, in harmony with the Christian faith. 
And the Christian faith includes Jews, Greeks, Romans, now Americans, Africans, and people of every tribe, country, and language. So that's what you should get in the context of Titus when it talks about God's elect. At one point in time, God's chosen people that he worked with were of one race, the Jewish people. And through the Jewish people, through Abraham's offspring, he has blessed the whole world through Jesus Christ. And people of all types, shapes, and sizes are in Christ and are God's chosen people that he works with and has a covenant with. So a question to ask yourself as you study. Paul was confident that God positioned him to minister to many people. So I think you should ask yourself, where has God positioned me? And how am I glorifying him in that role? Paul was, after all, an apostle, a servant, a preacher, and he glorified God in all these roles. He was also a tent maker in that glorified God. But where in your life has God positioned you? And what are you doing in that positioning? Another purpose of this letter was to produce knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in its readers. The Bible has many purposes in the Christian life, but one of the essential reasons for it is to fill our minds with the knowledge of God. And the knowledge of God, uh, when it is in us, will so much impact our thoughts and our worldview and our emotions, and that will bleed over into our conduct. Listen to these verses about the Bible and its effect on the person's life. Psalm 119.11, maybe you recognize this. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. 1 John 2.1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The Bible not only transforms our minds, but it also makes a difference in how we live. If it has no effect on us, we probably haven't applied it enough or understood it properly. If our Bible study does not impact our love, and our obedience um, to God, then it hasn't been effective. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that if our outward lives are like skin and hair, our doctrine is the skeleton. In other words, our beliefs are the foundations to our actions. And when we truly study God's Word, God studies us and exposes the things that need to be fixed. Now look at verse 2 for a moment. It says, In hope of eternal life, which God promised, which God, who never lies, promised before the age, the ages began. Now you are better than God at one thing. And this one thing is something that you are very good at, but God can never do. You are a liar. And not one lie has ever left the mouth of God. If God says something, it's true. Have you heard the story of Balaam? 
Balaam was a messed up, greedy guy, but God gave a very important message to him and through him. The main thrust of this message is found in Numbers 23, 19, where Balaam says, God is not a man that he should lie. Charles Spurgeon, a Baptist preacher from 19th century England, explained that God would never even need to lie. Lying is something that fools do when they need a temporary advantage in the present moment. But God sees the whole picture and causes events to unfold so he would never even need to lie or be dishonest. And so as people who trust this all-knowing God, we should realize that liars lose in the end when the truth comes out. But honest people, though they may suffer at first, will be successful in the end. God himself never lies, but he does allow others to lie. And sin is included in his plan, but he never commends dishonesty. There are moments in the biblical timeline where sin is described in detail, but it is never prescribed as a practice for any of us to adopt. Now, there are some critics who point out that uh, God lies in the Bible. They, they think he did. And uh, if you go to Jeremiah 1 and Jeremiah 12, I think Jeremiah even makes this accusation of God. Um, or actually, it's in Jeremiah 20. And Jeremiah makes this accusation that you've lied to me, God. But God reminds him that he had told Jeremiah the whole, the full truth. And that Jeremiah, I guess, did not embrace it fully and did not actually anticipate that God's words would come true. And so then in this moment of mourning um, and this moment of poetry... He is so distraught that he claims God lied to him. Of course, he was wrong. God never lies. Um, and Paul, though, is referring to something specific that God has never lied about. And that's God's promise of eternal life. His promise of salvation comes from before time began, according to Paul. And God wasn't lying when he revealed the plan either. Listen to John 14, 1 through 3, what Jesus says. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. In recent idea, I mean, in recent years, the idea of a God who changes has become popular. Followers of this idea will say, in the Bible times, some things were sinful, but now they're okay. According to them, God could say one thing today, but it might not be any good tomorrow. But God does not change or lie, and that is one of the most important things about him. Listen to Malachi 3.6. For I, the Lord, do not change. If God changed, he might wake up one day and decide to forget all about forgiving us, taking back his word about salvation or heaven. 
but he won't change and he cannot lie. And this gives us hope, a Christian hope that is totally different from other kinds of hope. We say, I hope we're having pizza for dinner tonight. I hope the Panthers go to the Super Bowl this year. Or I hope my Amazon package was delivered today. But Christian hope is so much more than that. Christian hope is being certain of something. And this verse explains it. We can absolutely be sure of God's promises because he cannot lie. And that is the Christian hope. Moving on to verse 3. And at the proper time, he, uh, excuse me, at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching which, with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. God involves human beings in his plan as they preach his message through evangelism and pulpit ministry. This is a privilege that each Christian can enjoy today. Listen to Romans 10, 13 through 17. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. God esteems good gospel preaching. But perhaps you've noticed that preaching isn't so popular. It's a foolish thing to the world, but God uses it in a powerful way. For the word of cross, the for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. That's 1 Corinthians 1:18. As for the content of our preaching, verse 3 is clear. If a sermon is going to be substantive, you must be bringing God's word and preaching the gospel from every passage. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. That's verse 4. Paul was Titus's brother in Christ, but because Paul had trained Titus so closely, Paul identifies Titus as his son in the faith. The Christian faith brings people together into a family, does it not? Finally, verse 5, Paul says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. This verse explains why this letter to Titus is so important, even to us today. The church, Christianity as a whole, was about to go through a huge transition in Titus's day. After more than three decades of being led by first Jesus, and then men who were appointed to leadership publicly by Jesus think Peter, John, James, Jude, and Paul, now the church was going to be led by trained elders, pastors, and overseers. Okay, it was a big shift. So Paul writes this letter to Titus and two letters to Timothy about how to be a solid pastor 
and how to appoint others to positions in the church. Now, you might think, well, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a church leader. So how will the letter of Titus apply to me at all? Well, almost everything required of pastors and elders is required for all Christians. God doesn't want pastors to be spiritually thriving and the congregations to be backsliding. He wants every person in the church to be walking in a way that honors Him. That being said, positions in ministry are reserved for those who are especially mature. This short letter applies to us in another way. And I'll explain it like this. Titus, having been trained by Paul, already knew most of the content in this letter. He had traveled with Paul and got to see his church planting ministry happen firsthand. So Titus knew what qualified someone to be a pastor, and he knew how congregations ought to behave. But Paul sends Titus this letter, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, to arm Titus with authority. The rebellious people in Crete, some of whom were in the church, might have tried to tune Titus out. But Paul sent a book of the Bible to Titus, and true Christians would have to listen to that. See, our, op our opinions and our feelings about something don't always matter. hate to break it to you. But if God speaks about a subject, everybody must do what he says. In our lives, when we address others in the church or when we speak to an unbeliever, our opinions might matter a little here and a little there. But if we choose our words with the Bible in mind, and if we sprinkle Scripture into every statement, we can have a serious impact in our dealings with others. So that's the first section of Titus. And in the next section, we will move further along past the introduction of Paul in chapter 1 into the meat of the letter. And I hope you'll listen to that as well.